Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, my 13th annual top 10 list, and then Paul Martineau talking about Minor White, a conversation he and I taped in 2014. Why Martineau and White? You'll hear why in the top 10 after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to the Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trodgell Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology, from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for... Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, on view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hershorn. Visit hershorn.si.edu for more. Welcome back. First up this week, my 2016 top 10 list. The caveats. There are a bunch of major 2016 shows I haven't seen yet, such as Kara Walker, Albert Olin, and Fred Wilson in Northeast Ohio, Elio Oidesica in Pittsburgh, and John McLaughlin in Los Angeles. And as with last year, I've spent 2016 working on a project that has kept me rather more tethered to a keyboard than usual, and have traveled to see fewer major shows this year than in previous years. Deadlines are deadlines. As always, this list is in rough, sort of like this order, from around number 10 to around number 1. And as usual, these are exhibitions of art from the modern and contemporary era, which means I'm leaving out the Valentin de Bologna retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is one of the best exhibitions I've ever seen. We'll start with 4562 Enright Avenue at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, an architectural displacement that served as artifact, presentation of history, and that raised questions about loss in the future of old American cities, such as St. Louis. For the exhibition, the Pulitzer commissioned the 10-member Berlin-based architectural collective Raumleber Berlin to create an object or exhibition that responds to the present condition of the city of St. Louis. Raumleber Berlin worked with neighborhood residents and urban planners to essentially salvage a house, 
a house that was due to be demolished, and to literally present it in the Pulitzer's main gallery in a context that included videos of neighborhood residents and books and journals about urban history and planning, all of which prompted a viewer, at least me, to consider the emptying out of American cities, including the racism that motivated and continues to motivate white flight. The Pulitzer is a unique place in the American art ecosystem. It essentially operates less as a Kunsthal than as a curatorial laboratory. 4562 Enright urged overlapping considerations of urbanity, suburbanity, racism, architecture, history, and future, and made an argument that the Pulitzer model is worth copying. Next, a more traditional exhibition, Bruce Connor, It's All True, which is now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and which I saw at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The exhibition, organized by San Francisco's Gary Garrels and Rudolf Freiling, and presented at MoMA by Stuart Comer and Laura Hotman, and several assistants, confirmed that Connor is one of the greatest American artists of the 20th century, in part because his career doesn't really slot into the parade of isms that still dominate accounts of 20th century art, Connor is rarely considered in the top tier of the canon, that's too bad. Among the show's pleasures was the opportunity to consider Connor's films as part of a whole with his collaged sculptures, as different expressions of similar ideas and techniques. With the possible exception of the eagerly paranoid Clifford Still, no American artist responded to Cold War threats and potential horrors more intensely than Connor. Speaking of MoMA, It and the Hammer check in at number 8 on my list, with major new websites that offer historians, and just plain art lovers, important archives that would otherwise be difficult and, depending on where you live, expensive to access. This year, MoMA put online its complete exhibition archive, complete with press releases, checklists, ancillary materials, and even PDFs of catalogs. It's terrific. I've already used it to research this podcast, a book on which I'm working, and an essay I wrote for another book. I also downloaded the museum's 1998 Sarah Whitfield, John Elderfield, Bernard catalog just because. The Hammer put online the archive for curator Kelly Jones's landmark 2012 exhibition Now Dig This, Art and Black Los Angeles 1960-1980. It should be the website that launches dozens of masters and PhD theses. Honorable mention to the Princeton University Art Museum for its new website of the complete and long far too inaccessible minor white archive, and to the Getty for its Getty Research Portal, which makes books about art in many major libraries such as those at the Met, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Warburg, and Heidelberg University, accessible online. In all, there are 95,000 books available at the Getty Research Portal. Because I enjoyed the Princeton University Minor White Archive so much, the second segment of this week's holiday show will feature Getty Museum curator Paul Martineau, whose Minor White retrospective was on view in 2014. At number seven, the joint Los Angeles County Museum of Art and Getty Robert Maplethorpe Project which resulted in a retrospective exhibition that spanned two museums and two publications. The show, or shows, were thorough and thoughtful, and the Getty-published book Robert Maplethorpe, The Archive, edited by Michelle Brunick and Getty Research Institute staffer Francis Turpak, was one of the best and most valuable books of the year. Every time I open it, I learn something, not just about Maplethorpe, but about the era in which he worked. On one of my visits to MoMA curator Ann Umland's Francis Bacabia show, I noticed something I rarely see in MoMA's Yoshio Taniguchi designed people mover of a building. Exhibition visitors were advancing at a crawl. People weren't zipping by paintings, they were stopping in front of them. They weren't cruising past valises stuffed with printed materials, they were hovering over them. Umland and MoMA's Picabia show succeeded in many ways, many art historical ways. But prime among those ways was presenting a thorough and thoughtful presentation of an artist American audiences don't know well and that they obviously want to. The best exhibition we didn't feature on the Modern Art Notes podcast this year was Painting the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950. to 1950. 
a major survey at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Why didn't we do it? The museum didn't reply to my emails until just last week. Like most Philly Museum exhibitions, the show was stuffed into far too small a space, with the result being that the art was hard to look at. But what was there pushed American audiences to consider Mexican modernism beyond the stars, beyond Rivera, Kahlo, Siqueiros, and such. American art history students in museums have been over in love with contemporary in recent years. This show could point them in new directions. American museums, especially those in California, none of which took this show, should be embarrassed at how little Mexican modernism is presented and studied in the United States. My number four exhibition of the year was Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, Evelyn Hankins' examination of early Irwin. The show was built around the Hirshhorn's strengths in early Irwin. It has a mid-60s dot painting and two discs, and demonstrated the value and importance of a museum's starting its investigations with its own collection and building knowledge from there. It also served as a place to think about how painting, including Irwin's, contributed to the development of minimalism, particularly California light and space. In a related story, one I discussed with Erwin here on The Man Podcast, in fact, I can't wait to see Stephanie Barron's John McLaughlin survey at LACMA. 2016 came with the usual range of disappointments, too many exhibitions of artists from the big-ticket commercial dealerships, not enough exhibitions of and featuring women and people of color, and two disappointments that were outside the norm and less predictable. First, the National Gallery of Art reopened its East Building after a multi-tens of millions of dollars remodeling. The museum didn't announce how much the project cost. Given an opportunity to improve America's worst art museum building, the National Gallery punted and instead nibbled at the margins. The new galleries are small, cramped, poorly integrated with each other and the building, and weirdly designed. For example, gallery after gallery features both walls that float and some that don't creating bizarre visual noise that often interferes with artwork, especially installation-sensitive works by artists such as Ann Truitt, Fred Sandback, and Agnes Martin. By some measures, it's the worst major museum construction project in recent memory. The other disappointment is the rapid, kind of sudden decline of the contemporary group show, once an exhibition format that led to important scholarship and associations between both artists and their own time, and now pretty much dead. The major exception was my number three exhibition, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University's Southern Accent Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, which travels to the Speed Art Museum in Louisville next year. The American South has not always produced America's best ideas or practices, but after being a cultural backwater in the 18th and 19th century, before the Civil War, Northerners actually urged border states to stay in the Union because there was nothing in Southern culture worth aligning with, But in the 20th century, the region emerged as a major contributor to American literature and music, to say nothing of Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. The art world has been a little slow to think of the South as a region, especially in recent years when New York and Los Angeles dominate American art. At a time when the art world needs all the antidotes to creeping coastal commercialism it can get, this show scores big. My number two show debuted at the ICA Boston in 2015, but I didn't see it until this year. When Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, landed at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. It's now at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. At a time when MFA programs all but insist that young artists have to go deeply into student debt to legitimize their careers, Leap Before You Look reminded us all that there is another way. Community and the exchange of ideas matters more than tuition payments. In a related story, the Cincinnati Art Museum exhibition, Kentucky Renaissance, the Lexington Camera Club, and its community could be said to have offered a similar alternate path. I didn't see that show, but curator Brian Cholas's Yale University Press catalog was another of the best books of the year. I've been doing top 10 lists for 12 years now, and I don't think a best show of the year has ever been clearer than it was this year. 
Carrie James Marshall Mastery, assembled by a team of curators and on view now at the Metropolitan after debuting at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, is as good as a retrospective of a living artist can be. It will travel to the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles next year. In presenting the full arc of Marshall's career, it showed that he isn't just a great painter of American history and a smart synthesizer of arts history, but that he's one of America's leading intellectuals, a top observer of America's promise and promises, our failures and our successes. One more thing before we're done. The Melvin Edwards Retrospective, organized by the Nasher Sculpture Center's Catherine Kraft in early 2015, showed Edwards to be as major a sculptor as Marshall is a painter. No museum in New York or Los Angeles took it. Ruth Fine's Norman Lewis Retrospective debuted at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in 2015 and offered Lewis as a crucial figure in ABEX-dominated New York as the artist who figured out how to bring sociopolitical content to abstraction. No museum in New York or Los Angeles took it. Catherine Canjo organized a terrific Jack Winton retrospective for the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego in 2014. No New York museum took it. And don't get me started on Betty Saar, who hasn't even had a full American retrospective. I understand why New York is congratulating itself over the Marshall Show, but we should remember this. It's a rare success in a string of institutional failures. The history of the civil rights movement is commonly illustrated with well-known photographs from Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma, leaving the visual story of the movement outside the South remaining to be told. In North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South, a new book from Getty Publications, historian Mark Speltz shines light on images of everyday activists who fought campaigns against segregation, police brutality, and job discrimination in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Visit shop.getty.edu to learn more. Realist, surrealist, hippie, punk, icon, Bruce Connor, it's all true, is on view now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Connor, a famous prankster and master of multimedia, was a visionary of San Francisco's art scene, but could not be defined by any one movement. Experience over 250 works from this provocative artist's incredible output, including film, assemblages, paintings, photograms, and more. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question, and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Paul Martineau, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. I think the beginning of your catalog and indeed of the show itself provide a really clear place to start a conversation about both Minor White's work and his life. And I'll set it up the way you set it up in the catalog, because that's what's in front of me. There are three pictures that open the book. One is of a, a 
twisting tree trunk called Copper Creek, Oregon. It's from 1941. And then we go to a picture of Tom Murphy's nude torso. And then the third picture, just before kind of the title page of the book, is of kind of a western exposed, dried out wooden fence that kind of has a circle of barbed wire that's being pierced by by part of the fence. Tell us why you chose those opening spreads. Well, these are all early works by Minor White, and I think they show his connection to Edward Weston quite well. His interest in nature, uh, particularly in that twisted tree trunk, can be seen and felt the influence of Weston Weston's work. There's also a little bit of biography of play in this sequence, I suspect. Yes. Minor had a relationship with Tom Murphy. He was his student and model and possibly his lover. And that picture that he created that is in the middle is very personal, a very personal one for Minor. It's probably a good time to tell the story of White's 1947 series, The Temptation of St. Anthony's Mirrors, and how and why he came to make it. Minor created an album that contained 32 gelatin silver prints of Tom Murphy, and some of the pictures show Tom Murphy Murphy clothed in environmental portraits. Others show him nude, and still others show various parts of his body, like his feet or his legs or his backside, and it really is a visual love poem. How and why did White come to, to make this series of work? Well, I think that he had these feelings for Murphy, and he really wanted to express these feelings in a way similar to Edward Weston with his wife, Karis Wilson, or Alfred Stieglitz with George O'Keefe by creating very personal, intimate pictures, making love to this person with the camera. And so he created only two copies of this album, one for Murphy and one for himself. Uh, The copy that was in Murphy's hands was damaged and is in very, very poor state of conservation. And the second copy, the one that he retained, remained relatively in pristine shape in the archives at Princeton. Probably useful to give listeners an idea of how Stieglitz's photographs of O'Keefe would have been easily accessible and exhibited in in 1947 and 1948, but but White's pictures of Murphy, uh uh-uh. Well, after Minor came back from the war, he was in World War II serving the South Pacific, he went to New York and he introduced himself to Stieglitz. So he had access to Stieglitz's work. Stieglitz showed him everything that he had done. And I think it had a great deal of influence on Minor, impressed him deeply. And Stieglitz could show these to his friends, but since Minor had these feelings towards Murphy, homosexual feelings, he had to keep those feelings under wraps. It was a time when homophobia was rampant, and had Minor exposed himself, he would have had a very hard time getting employment. And in fact, he really couldn't have published and then mailed these several of these, many of these images. No, no. It was illegal to mail any nudes that showed pubic hair. And I recall reading about Weston 
taking a magnifying glass and looking at some of his pictures of Karis Wilson and trying to see if there were any pubic hairs that were visible before he put the prints in the mail. <laughs> so how did how did this series of whites work its way in, in, into into the canon, into art history, and into kind of dissemination to other artists and photographers. It, it, I mean, it's a masterful, remarkable series of pictures, and I guess I don't have a real great understanding of how it has lived for the last 65 years. It hasn't. It's been under wraps. It existed at the archive in Princeton where the artist left his work, and it's never been shown before, and it was never published in full. The picture that we referred to in the beginning of Tom Murphy, the one where his hands are like dove, dove's wings. That picture is from that sequence and it had been published. But very many, very few of the pictures in that sequence have ever been published. So really it comes as a surprise to almost everyone, including me when I first looked at it. Were these pictures open to scholars at Princeton or is, is there kind of a recent development that made made your entire project possible? I advocated for greater access to the archives. And they also had a policy of not lending original works from the archives. So now that they have a new curator, who's wonderful, by the way, Kate Broussard, she helped me gain access to the material and request it. And that's how we got the pictures for the show. One of the things I found myself wondering about White after reading your essay is how the archive ended up at Princeton in the first place. Well, Peter Burnell was hired as the curator at Princeton, the curator of photographs, and he had a relationship with Minor White, a long-standing one. He was one of his resident students years ago in Rochester, and he helped Minor with many different projects, including getting aperture out the door. So it was the personal relationship, not an institutional? I think so. And at one point, Peter had asked Minor to come and give a lecture at Princeton, and that was the time when Minor could see their facilities. One of the things we haven't discussed yet in the context of any of White's work or the temptation of St. Anthony pictures is White's interest in spirituality. Let's, let's get to the way that manifests itself in The Temptation of St. Anthony in a moment. But I guess maybe first, what is, what was White's interest in spirituality? How did it develop? White grew up Lutheran, but his family didn't attend church very often. And when he went into World War II, he decided to be baptized as a Roman Catholic. And he was following that practice for a while. But by the late 19... The early 1950s, he decided that he was more interested in other things, and one of those things was Christian mysticism. So he did that for a while, reading the great book on mysticism by Evelyn Underhill. And later on, when he moved to Rochester, he delved into Zen Buddhism, the I Ching, and then later astrology. So he embraced many different philosophies and religious ideas throughout the course of his life. And all these things had an impact on his work. How do you see that in the Temptation of St. Anthony pictures, other than, of course, <laughs> the title? <laughs> There's this wonderful sequence of shots of feet, and one gets the sense of a kind of rhythmic pilgrimage throughout the sequence. 
it's it's one of these things that you can almost feel the trajectory through the album pages by the kind of stamping of feet and the uh, positioning of the hands. There are a lot of hands. There are maybe six or seven pictures of of only hands and maybe a couple other pictures where Murphy's hands are on his torso or or hanging to the side of his body. And hands are so expressive and important to pictures. I don't think many people really realize how important they are. Whenever you look at a, por- a painted portrait, if you take out the hands, um, the picture loses a lot of its their energy. There was something I wanted to ask earlier about this series and, and forgot to, so forgive me for going backwards. You mentioned that White made two portfolios of The Temptation of St. Anthony pictures. How did he make them? Are they are they bound? Are they loosely folios? Yes, both albums are bound, and they have exactly the same sequence of pictures in them. So one of them is unbounded on your walls? No. The good copy is in a case in our show, opened up to a particular spread. And then I used another picture from the album as a comparative illustration on my label so that people would be able to see what Tom look like, uh, because the spread that I chose, both bodies are fragmented and don't show the head. We have, we've been talking about White's photos of, of, of Tom Murphy and his kind of the sublimation of his sexuality in his pictures, but he also was interested, regardless of where he lived, in landscape. Does his interest in landscape come primarily through Weston, or do you see White going in, in other directions too? Well, I think... Sometimes you see a little bit of Ansel Adams, but it's a lot closer to Weston. Also, I see some connections to Charles Sheeler and to Paul Strand. So the picture in which I most see Sheeler is a picture White took in 1954 of what looks like a barn outside Rochester. Sheeler doesn't strike me as somebody White probably would have had a lot of exposure to on the West Coast. How did he come to him, do you think? I don't think that he knew Sheila personally, but when he first arrived in Portland, he got all the books that he could get hold of on photography, and he went through them all. God help anyone else that wanted to have books on photography at that time. But he set himself the goal of learning photography through these books and taught himself the basics of darkroom work. He had joined the Oregon camera society camera club and taught himself how to make pictures and you figure he must have found sheeler as part of that experience rather than when he got got east that's right one of the landscapes white shot was point lobos it was probably a law in the middle of the 20th century in california that if you were a photographer you had to shoot point lobos I wonder if in looking at White's pictures of Point Lobos, there's anything in them that you think are particularly him, that are distinctly him, that that he would have brought to Point Lobos that Weston or Wynne Bullock or somebody else wouldn't have and didn't. Well, when Minor made the series of pictures called The Fourth Sequence, which is pictures that were made on Point Lobos, he instilled those pictures with a lot of emotion and sexual frustration. And he writes about this in his journal. When you look at the pictures, you can feel those feelings. That's something quite different than any other pictures I've looked at by any other makers. A a kind of abstracted self-portraiture element. And in fact, White himself said that his photographs could, maybe even should, always be read that way. Yes. He believed that every photograph was a self-portrait. 
which is kind of an astonishing comment. But as I flip through the book, looking at picture after picture, and especially after reading your essay, it, it really does kind of jump out. I mean, maybe not everyone. I mean, maybe not as picture of, of, of the Grand Tetons, but, but that is there a lot. And I wonder if there are pictures that for you express that most fully. There's a really wonderful picture taken in Rochester of a window with a still life in front of it. And it's a bottle that's sitting on a sill in one of his studio windows with a piece of driftwood sticking out of it. And there's wonderful filigree patterns of frosted ice on the window because it's winter outside. And this picture has all the elements, I think, of a classic minor white picture. It has the abstract abstraction. It's set up uh, to a certain degree. It's clever. White used lights on the outside, outside his window to illuminate and backlight that image. It's something that you look at at first and you think it's one thing and then you look again and then you figure out what it is. So it has this sense of mystery about it. It's 72 North Union Street, Rochester. Yes. From 1958. Yes. It's abstract, it's abstract, it's abstract, and then eventually you find the bottle. Exactly. And why does, why does this one strike you as a really good example of, of white showing us white? I think it's because it was that way with him that it was hard to come to... It was hard to come to an understanding of what, what it was about, and you had to work at it in order to figure out the person that was deep inside. We'll have an image of this picture up on manpodcast.com, but I never would have guessed that was a piece of driftwood until you said it was a piece of driftwood. When I first saw it, I, I thought it, the bottle had spilled over on a table and something had leaked out. So white worked very much in series. We were talking earlier about the temptation of St. Anthony's Mirrors series, for example. I have another series or two I want to ask you about, but do you have an idea or an understanding of why series were of particular interest to him? Well, White studied to be a poet. His his minor was English when he went to university, and then after he finished and graduated. He devoted a number of years of his life to studying poetry and writing it. And after a few years, he realized that he wasn't getting anywhere. So he gave that up and became a photographer, decided to become a photographer. But one of the things that he did during that time was to write a hundred uh, sequence sonnet. And I think that the idea of sequencing comes from his interest in poetry and the order of words. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because sequencing is in some ways a very particularly American thing in photography. American photographers have been fascinated with and made use of, of the series going back to the mid-19th century, O'Sullivan, Watkins, Gardner. But none of White's series feel like narratives, sequential narratives based on the tangible, on physical geographies, the way the way a Gardner sequence or an O'Sullivan sequence down a river might. And I, I guess maybe that's something, that that's a way in which White opened up the field? Oh, definitely. I think so. Because they're more esoteric and they call on us to bring our own associations to the reading of these groups of pictures. 
White understood that the picture that you just looked at was going to influence the one that you're looking at. And he wanted people to keep the picture before in their mind's eye as they looked at the next picture and so on and so forth and to bring their own associations to the reading of these groups of images. He he has a lot of faith in the viewer. I mean that's that's one of the things that I thought about as I as I paged through the book is that he he was really comfortable kind of allowing the viewer to breathe. Maybe more so than anybody any of his contemporaries. I mean like lots of other great photographers of the era but when bullocks don't breathe the same way as as white one of white's really significant later series is steely the barb of infinity oh that's a great sequence yeah it really is so what exactly is that sequence and and what does where does the title come from the title comes from a line from charles baudelaire and the sequence starts off with a picture of a waterfall and um, it's snowing, so it's very kind of soft focus. And then it proceeds to images of water and ice, and it quickly becomes very sharp and jagged, abstract. And then as you proceed along, you encounter some very sharp-looking icicles. And after that, there's a garage door that's covered in snow, a very peaceful image. With, with a window that is also covered in snow. Yes. And the patterning on the, the garage door almost looks like a figure, possibly Christ on the cross, if you have some imagination. And then following that, there are a few more images of icy water. And then there's an image where a big block of ice is pierced by some light, possibly the sun that's coming through it. This series of pictures was made after Miner had a failed relationship with a young man who was living in his home as a resident student. And the student left. And Miner was crushed by feelings of guilt and unhappiness and needed to express these feelings. So he went out into the, into the winter landscape and made these pictures. And one senses the struggle that he had in these pictures. And then the resolution of that struggle, uh, finally coming to the very end, which is this beautiful transcendent picture of this light piercing this ice, icy slush. In, in a number of the pictures, probably over half of them, it's hard to tell if the ice is melting or being formed, which it strikes me as kind of a key metaphor in the series. How how many prints of each of these whites exist? I'm not exactly sure. White never really additioned his prints very much. Occasionally when he did a portfolio, he would addition that. But I don't really know how many prints exist. And, and finally, like other photographers who had White's background in, say, in, in California, in the Adams-Weston orbit, White is really interested in printing. And... A picture he took in Avon, New York in 1958 shows him experimenting with, with film and printing in a really interesting way. What, what picture is that? That's the picture in which he's used infrared film. So it changes the tonality of what's being pictured. And in this particular case, he's focused in on two barns and the shadow of an electric pole or a telephone pole. And the fact that the 
the film that he's using has changed the tonalities, creates a very kind of eerie, otherworldly image that almost looks like a Hitchcock film still. Is, is there a biographical background for, for those those two pictures? I think that it comes at a time when White had left the West Coast and he was searching for new ways to picture the landscape. He was an, unimpressed by the rather drab landscapes that were to be found in upstate New York. So this was another way of experimenting with that, playing with the landscape in order to get new results, ones that showed things in ways that weren't visible to the eye under normal conditions. You know, that's that's interesting in the sense that there are so many examples in American art history of photographers going from east to west and finding ways to compose in that new landscape. And there are many fewer examples of photographers going the other way. That's right. Of going west to east. So it's interesting to to think of White having to work backwards from the way American photographers right. have worked he for 110 years. He was used to a certain grandeur in the landscape, a certain drama, and he was having trouble finding that in upstate New York. And he did work on a series called Rural Cathedrals, and that was all about vernacular architecture, particularly barns and their importance in that environment. And he also went inside. He started When he went east, he went inside and took pictures in, in old houses and such. Yes, yes. And in his own studio loft, he did a lot of work there as well. Well, Paul Martineau, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.